Good morning and welcome. Good morning and welcome. Good morning and welcome. Okay. Don't you just love singing Christmas songs? I... Yeah. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. It almost makes you feel like you're somewhere else. <laughs> well, as uh, Eric shared, we're going to continue, excuse me, as uh, Drew shared, we're going to continue going through the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15, picking up our reading in verse 34. And our topic today is the issue of character. And character is one of those kind of things that actually character is a description of a behavioral pattern. You can have good character, bad character, or any other way you want to describe a character. But usually when we say the word character, we imply or assume that we're talking about somebody having good character. But that not, that's not necessarily the same thing. I mean, if, for example, a banker might talk about your uh, your. Uh, financial character, and it may be good, it may be bad. Basically, character is not about the future, even not necessarily so much about the present, but it describes what you have been in the past. And everybody has a past, and the issue is what direction is that going? Which trajectory is it taking? So today we're going to be looking a little bit about that character issue, and I know that most of you think, oh, I should have skipped this week, but I'm sorry. It's as hard for me as it is for you. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together? Chapter 15, beginning in verse 34, on to the end of the chapter in verse 41. It begins as follows. It says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they were doing. Of course, this is referring to the cities and churches they planted on their first missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They said such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we come to your word this morning with, with the highest level of regard and, and reverence for your truth that these words that you have sealed and, and secured for us through the centuries, that we might understand your heart, your will, your ways. And so, Lord, as we look to your word, we look to bring our lives into as close an agreement as we can with its truth. We submit to its counsel. We seek its wisdom. We trust in what it tells us about ourselves and even about the future, Lord. We ask you to bless this time that we spend humbly under the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This account of Paul and Barnabas' big breakup um, is something obviously that's very well known. Most people who have read any of the New Testament become familiar with this event in their life. But at the same time, it's something that's left both the student and the scholar somewhat puzzled over. I mean, think about it for a moment. How do two men who have served and suffered and sacrificed and survived such difficulties and hardships as these two men went through together over so many years, how do they become so quickly and completely estranged? I mean, I have to grant that there are differences of opinions that people have all the time. I mean, that's not necessarily a thing that we would break a relationship up over, but we do see things from a different point of view. I mean, the simple fact that a man and a woman looking at the same event may walk away with two different conclusions or concerns. You know, I, we drive up on an accident, and I want to know who's responsible, and my wife wants to know who got hurt. And we, you know, really kind of go in two completely different directions, and so difference of opinions doesn't really indicate somebody is bad or wrong, but this was no ordinary disagreement between these two. In fact, it says in the text, it was a sharp disagreement. Uh, the word that's interesting that's used there in the original language means a sharp fit of anger contention and arguing. In fact, it's the very root to our English word paroxysms, which basically is a sudden attack of violent expression or anger or emotion. 
In fact, some of the synonyms for that are outburst or outbreak or eruption or explosion. In other words, they're talking about really a major, major blow up between these two guys. Uh, Peterson may have really summed it best when he said, tempers flared and they ended up going in separate ways. Their relationship, their fellowship was broken at this point. They both, you can picture in your mind, these two godly men are walking away in opposite directions, muttering to each other about what dunderhead the other one was. I mean, you know, it's one of those kind of things. How can you be so obtuse? How can you be so stubborn? I can just imagine, not that I've ever had those conversations. I've, I've just heard about them and read about them. But you can imagine this, this major breakup, and it kind of fractures our concept of the apostles, doesn't it, a little bit? I mean, we try to see them as kind of being otherworldly, that they, they were on earth, but they didn't really touch it when they walked. You know, they, they could walk at night because the whole halo around their head helped to illuminate the surroundings. But to think of them as being... Well, like you, <laughs> seems almost sacrilegious, if not very disappointing. But at the same time, it's helpful to recognize that they were men of like passions. They were individuals who had to deal with the same fallen nature, the same foul foibles and fallibles that you have. And in a sense, that becomes, to me at least, a sense of encouragement because I realize that these men, despite their many shortcomings, could be used so profoundly, so powerfully, so wonderfully by God, it really gives hope to all of us, I hope, that an inspiration, if you will, that God can use you. God can do significant things through you. And so that's why God, and what I love about the Bible, the Bible never varnishes anybody's appearance. I mean, they, we see them the way they are. They, it displays the characters of all of its individuals, mention it, as real people living in the real world, dealing with real things in a real way. And sometimes it's a little too real, like this situation that we just read about. You'd assume that these men who had shared such a long and a rich friendship that went back decades, and who had labored and campaigned together, that their companionship would be something that was unbreakable, and yet it broke, at least for a season. You see, sadly, years of shared ministry was not enough to hold this dynamic partnership together. If you'd ask them why, I would suggest that they would have argued that they were standing upon principles. Usually, most times when people, especially men, get into disagreements, they're both standing on a principle where they think their view or their principle supersedes that of the other, not realizing that sometimes it's just a matter of perspective, how you're looking at it. For Paul, it was all about being faithful. I mean, to him, Mark was not a faithful man. He wasn't somebody that you could trust on, at least when you were in a pinch. I mean, the way it's even stated, he says, he deserted them and had not continued with them in the work. Again, Peterson puts it this way, he wasn't about to take a quitter who, as soon as the going got tough, jumped ship on them. In Paul's mind, he's a quitter, but the word is even stronger. The seriousness of Paul's concern is kind of underscored by the word that he uses here. The word is apostasia. It means to depart from the faith. It's a falling away. It's a defection. In other words, this is the worst kind of betrayal Paul could imagine, and it kind of gives us an insight to the circumstance in which he left were ones that were very difficult for Paul and for Barnabas and the rest of their team, and they really felt his absence in a very profound way. It's funny how that sometimes that we can think that our role or our position or our presence isn't that big a deal until you're gone and then suddenly there's this vacuum, this void, this absence that has to be filled some way and, and oftentimes not as well as you may have done it. And it's that idea that Paul says that every one of us is a member of the body of Christ. We're members in particular that were designed by God and gifted by God and called and purposed by God to be in a certain place at certain times to do certain things. And the assumption we have is somebody else could do it better than I can is really a false assumption. You know, I mean, I don't think my fingers are especially wonderful in any particular way. But if I lose one of them, it's irreplaceable. Because it's, this digit is made to be on this 
hand right here at this position. If it's gone, I mean, I have to readjust my life to functioning without it. I mean, you ask the question, how do you effectively pick your nose with this one gone? You know, <laughs> these are... Reminds me, I had prostate cancer, and the doctor said, well, we're going to give you a digital exam. I thought he was talking about computers. I didn't realize this was a digit. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> I wasn't laughing at the moment. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> but I think about what Solomon said in Proverbs 25, 19, when he said, like a bad tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in times of trouble. Every one of us, I think, has experienced a bad tooth. Many of us have had a lame foot. I've, I've broken mine, and I know that it really inhibits your ability to do what you want to do. And he says that when you rely upon somebody and they don't hold up their end of the bargain, then it's really a crippling thing that you can't avoid. Barnabas, on the other hand, I think was motivated by a different, though equally important principle. I think for him it was forgiveness. I mean, after all, God forgives all of our sins when we ask him to. I mean, he, he, he has, he has front-loaded, you might say, with forgiveness. He's looking for the opportunity to show it to us. And so as a result, we're told that we should also be forgiving because our God is the God of second chances and third chances. He's the ultimate mulligan and do-over in the spiritual, emotional, and even the physical life. Nearly a hundred times in the scriptures, he enjoins us to be people who forgive. And he states it not as something that's optional, but something that is essential and, and necessary. So that in Matthew 6, 15, he said, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Without forgiveness, the gospel becomes totally impotent and our preaching becomes empty and it's devoid of power. And therefore, Paul put it very simply in Ephesians 4, 32, when he said, forgive one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Now, I often like to explain to people that to forgive somebody doesn't mean that you forget. There are many people saying, well, if you've forgiven me, you've completely forgotten what happened. No, that, that's not really true because that's impossible to do. When, when somebody lets you down or disappoints you, takes advantage of you or betrays you, it's pretty hard to forget that that ever happened because it's an event that's marked in your life. It's like this situation. It would be very difficult, if not impossible, for Paul to say, well, I've completely forgotten that Mark left us at that key moment. He couldn't forget that, nor is that even something necessarily, I think, that God's saying. But what it is, is when we forgive somebody, we don't use their transgression as a reference point for all future relationships. And so that someone might say, well, Paul's problem is he's just not a very forgiving guy. And yet when I read Paul's letters, he talks about it so extensively, and he outlines how deeply he comprehended he had been forgiven because of his far more horrendous behavior than anything Mark had ever done. But it's hard for me to think that that's what was going on here, that he was simply unforgiving and bitter and resentful. Importantly to us, we need to understand that faithfulness and forgiveness are foundational principles of the Christian life. They're, they're key to being Christ-like. They're virtues that should be central to who we are, how we think, how we live, how we interact with the people around us. So that if you are caught in this place where you simply can't see a person without referencing what they did, then you need to find a way to reconcile that. That's all there is to it that you need to be able to find a way that you can come to peace in your own heart and if necessary to be at peace with them and let it go and move on, not because you have forgotten it, but you realize I don't want that to be my reference point for future relationships. And that is an issue for many people. I mean, there are many people who are just caught in the state of unforgiveness. Somebody did something at one time in their life and every time the thought of them, God forbid you run into them, in Fred Meyer, and suddenly you go, oh, there they are. 
pretend like we're into yogurt. <laughs> you know what I mean? We have these kind of reflective things and we, we, if we can't just simply look at that person and say, hi, how are you doing? Uh, you know, and, and feel free in our hearts towards them, then we probably have something we need to work at. And it may be so deep and so severe that you actually need to sit down and talk about it, but then again, not necessarily either because if you can just let it go and they can let it go, then there's really no reason to keep on hammering on that same piece of metal. But what is critical is that it doesn't become the thing that defines you. And that's always, I think, the challenging thing in life. Lord, what am I defined by? What am I being defined by in this moment? Because whatever that defining thing is, that will influence your choices and your decisions and your behaviors. If you hold on to unforgiveness for things people have done, you'll be cautious and arm's length with people all the time. And you probably welcome COVID. That's what I love about COVID. It says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, but make sure you're wearing a mask and you're at least six feet apart. (laughs) And you might feel really good with that. Hey, this works for me. This works for me. (laughs) I can stay distant from people. But you also find that that's its own kind of danger and and, and poison. That's, it's something that really begins to hold you in check as a person, and you stop moving forward. If you feel like your life is kind of circling, <laughs> like a dog waiting to go to bed, you keep on walking around the bed, but you can't really kind of stop long enough to rest and be at peace, then you probably have come to some issue like that in your life that you just can't let go, and you're stuck. You're stuck in that place. And what's scary to me about getting stuck is I find that Christians who get stuck stop growing spiritually. They're the ones who always say, well, I believe in the Lord, but I just don't have the faith to trust him for what's going on in my life. And the reason is because they're not having a present experience of God's grace and goodness because they have really blocked that expression, blocked that experience of God. So when somebody says to me, well, I'm going through a dry period, I just don't hear the Lord, I, I, his word doesn't speak to me, my first question is, is, what is it you're not dealing with? What is it you're not willing to address? What have you said, I am not going there, I don't even bring it up, I'm not gonna even think about it or talk about it, I'm not going there. And at that point, you get stuck and you stop growing. You know, the Christian life is meant to be one that is constantly growing and maturing and deepening as we walk with the Lord. But I also find that in my experience that when you come to a situation, finding the truth, finding out what's right, what's wrong, what's good or evil, that even though they exist in very absolute, clear, concise, black and white dichotomous terms, I mean, right is right and wrong is wrong, and there's a dark line that separates the two, But the process for me as a sinful man, getting clarity on that issue is something else. It doesn't come easily and often it comes with great difficulty. And at the very risk of sounding evasive or nonsensical, it's never clear until it is. It's never clear until it is. That when I am facing situations that I just can't reconcile in my mind. God, how can this be? Why is this allowed to happen? And I pray over it and pray over it. It so, becomes so cloudy and so confusing until a moment in which God says, this is what really is the line that you should be standing on, what you need to do, how you need to respond in a way that honors me. The answer to who was right or wrong especially when we're talking about relationships, oftentimes lies somewhere in the middle. I mean, and that's because we are all sinners, we are all frequently sinful and fallible, so that no matter how right you may be on the issue, you'll also find some degree of wrong on your part. That even if the other person was completely wrong in their behavior towards me, I often find that my response to their wrong is equally wrong. And that makes me equally sinful in the eyes of God. And it's a lack of awareness that really robs us of one of the most essential virtues in our life that is not native to us. It doesn't naturally come to us. In fact, it's counterintuitive to who we are as people. It's a thing called humility. 
It's humility. Somebody once said that the problem with humility is the moment you recognize you are, you've lost it. Isn't that true? I mean, it really is true. And I, I used to think, well, God, give me a, a, you know, a humble heart, and then he showed me the path to getting a humble heart, and I said, well, not quite that humble. You know, because to be humble, you have to be humiliated. And I've never enjoyed being humiliated. But as Paul explained to the doctrinally concise Roman Jewish community, he said, let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, truth is found in the heart of God. It's not found in the heart of man. And we have to be aware of that, that I, I am not absolutely true in anything in my life because I'm constantly hounded by a fallen sinful nature. And it is only the Spirit of God and only the grace of God that operates within that realm of the Spirit that any of us can really be true to God in the truest sense. That we can do anything that really can be called altruistic, selfless, because it doesn't naturally flow out of us. And it's, as Billy Graham once warned a, 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 meeting, a meeting of pastors back in the early beginnings of a ministry, he said, there are three things that the man of God should never touch. And I, I summarize them as he should never touch the gold, he should never touch the gals, and he should never touch the glory. And what I've found over the years when I've had friends who have touched the gold and they've touched the gals, that first they transgressed by touching the glory. They began to be used by God and then they began to think that God used them because they were so good. Instead of going the other way around saying, God, I, as Paul said, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a worse sinner than anybody else, Paul said in his opening to the, his letter to Timothy. I was chief among sinners. I mean, you, put, you want to know who's at the top of the list of really bad people in the history of humanity? Me. Or as G.K. Chesterton put it so well <clears throat> when he was asked the question, what's wrong with the world? He said, dear sir, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. It's that awareness that God is true and we are not. Because none of us really have 20-20 insight on a situation. As Paul told the Corinthians, he said, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall be fully known. Now we think about poor reflection in a mirror. I mean, mirrors, you know, today are pretty good. In fact, in my case, they're way too good. I just like, you know, like them to be, I, I have to, to, to feel good about myself, I have to keep my glasses off, and then I can't, is anybody here? Is there, and then, I, and then I, I look flawless, but I put them back on and go, oh my gosh. Well, the whole point is that in their day, a mirror was nothing but a, a, a piece of brass, a bronze plate that was polished as high as they could so that they could see their reflection, but it was really kind of a modeled reflection, you know? It's not really particularly clear. And he said, that's the way we're, we're looking at circumstances. We look at situations. We look at other people, and we can see them, but we can't really see them with absolute accuracy. If for no other reason, I never really know ultimately what's in somebody else's heart. What are the driving motivations and passions of their life? And sometimes we don't even know that about our own selves. And that's where character comes in. The character is, is a track record that you look back on how a person has lived their life, the decisions and choices and actions that they've made, and you realize those are the fruits of their character being expressed in a visible way. That's why Jesus would say, judge a tree by its fruits when he was talking about false teachers. He says, don't just listen to their word, don't just listen to how wonderfully they communicate, but look at what their life is really about, how they live out their life on a day-to-day -day basis. And he said, then, then you'll know what's real and what's not. Now, for every one of us, that kind of scrutiny is a little bit, well, it's terrifying, isn't it? As someone said, it's the worst day of your life is when the 2020 van pulls up in front of your house. Now it's when people get your email address. And it's, you, know, you have no idea what's going to come down the tube. But in all of this, the man I am more concerned about is the one who is absolutely certain about the things for which it is not possible for him to be absolutely certain. 
Certainty can be a deception thing because only God speaks with absolute certainty. I can tell you what I think, I can tell you what I feel, I can tell you how something looks to me or how it impressed or touched my life, but in the end of the day, only God knows what the absolute truth is because God is the only one who holds the future and views it from a past perspective as well as a present and future perspective. It's a limitation that we have. You see, I don't know another man's heart or motivation. I don't even know what God's plan is for his life or the purpose that he has, much less even knowing it for sure about my own life. You know, I look at my life today and I have no plans for doing anything tomorrow or next year different than I have done last year or today. I don't have any plans, but I understand that I serve a God who can alter those plans dramatically. And if 2020 hasn't convinced you of that, I don't know what will. You know, none of us are living the life that we thought we were going to be living. We're not even celebrating Christmas the way we thought we would be celebrating Christmas. We didn't foresee that. And the question is, or the reality is, I can't control the future. All I can control is how I respond to it. And sometimes that's a battle, isn't it? How many of us, or let me put it this way, has any of us not struggled with depression or discouragement or fear or despondency or maybe anger and resentment? Because anger is just usually the precursor. We get angry and then we, when we don't have energy to be angry more, then we slide into depression. They're basically, <laughs> depressed people are usually, people are very angry about something that they've given up hope that they can change. And if you haven't experienced that, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> don't tell me how good you feel. I don't want to hear about it. And that's why it's well for us to keep two passages of Scripture in our minds. First of all, when God was looking to select a king to replace Saul, he told the prophet Samuel, the Lord does not look at things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's why even in our own devotional life, we need to pray Psalm 139. Lord, search me. Search my heart and let me know if there's any anxious thought or any wicked way in my life. An anxious thought. Is there some inner fear that's driving me to act or behave or to think or respond the way I am? Let me see what that is, that unbelief that's reigning in my heart right now, my fear about what's going to come, and it's causing me to be angry or short, uptight, or even to become a reactionary in some way. And even beyond that, Lord, show me if there's a wicked way in me. Our problem is that <clears throat> the word wicked has, in our uh, generation has come to mean something really, really bad, kind of a, a Jeffrey Dahmer kind of, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's something really, really, really wicked, you know, you know, kind of a, if you're not a cannibal, you're not really wicked. But in a biblical sense, wickedness simply means that you've gone a different way than the way God wants you to go. And suddenly, we find there's maybe a whole lot of stuff in our life that we don't give a second thought about that God says, but that's, that's wicked in my sight. That's a wretched thing because it's taking you away from your best interest, both in time and eternity, and it's drawing you into another set of things that will destroy you and bring harm. The other passage is Isaiah 55, 8, where he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. I don't think about things the way you think about things. I, I don't look at them the way you look at them. In fact, the path that I want you to go is probably not one that you would have picked for yourself. I look back at that now, I think, here I am, just creeping up so, well, I'm not creeping up, I'm racing towards my 71st birthday. And I, I think about my father-in-law sent my wife and I some pictures that he had uh, from when we were young. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you look at them and just go, where I thought I would be when I was that old and where I've ended up are, are two vastly different places. I mean, I, I didn't even know where Spokane was. You know, I mean, I had no idea, and I, I had no idea that the winters would be as cold as they are. And, <laughs> and 
And yet I look back and say, but God, what you did was so much better than anything I could have done for myself. If I look at the trajectory of my life that it was on when I came to Christ, I, I know I would not, well, I might not be alive, but I probably wouldn't be nearly as happy or fulfilled or satisfied as I am today. It's this realization that God knows best even when I think I do. And when I've come to those moments where I don't understand God, why are you allowing this to happen in this way in my life? And, I, and everything within me wants to say, God, this just isn't fair. This isn't right, or this is wrong. And, and yet somehow for reasons that I can't comprehend, you're allowing me to go through this because God is more concerned about the work he's doing in you than any work he will ever do through you. God is more concerned about what he places in your life than he is where your life is placed. And it's that problem we have because we tend to measure our value and our existence by the two bookends of birth and death. We may say we believe in eternal life, we believe in the Savior, we believe in all those things, but the reality is we practically live like atheists because we think everything is really determined by what happens through those two bookends. And as I'm getting to the end of the last chapters of my book, and I'm getting to the end of that shelf, closer and closer to the final bookend, you begin to step back and say, this is but for a moment that appears like a vapor and then passes away. Worst thing you do is put dates on pictures because it dates you. And I look at some of those pictures and my wife and me and our kids and other family members and you realize it feels like yesterday. <laughs> and I know most of you know this. But it's important that we understand the brevity of life so that we can begin to grasp the real meaning of life. And yet most people are, are living every day as if they're going to live forever. I was thinking about our, our president-elect, maybe, uh, Joe Biden, 78 years of age. And I think of all those millions from China, I thought, what is he gonna do with that? <laughs> I'm serious, I mean, what, what motivates somebody to make those kind of choices and decisions in their life? What, what would drive you to do that? And I think, it's such a foolish thing. Because like the guy said at the funeral, he said, how much did he leave behind? And he said, all of it. Everything you and I have, we'll leave it all behind but we operate as if we need to be able, we're like the pharaohs of Egypt who build tombs filled with all the good things that we're gonna need in the afterlife, and guess what? They open the tomb up and everything's still there, <laughs> except even the dust that was once that person. And I think that breaking free from that kind of mindset is extremely difficult. In fact, I would say it's impossible without the grace of God in our life. But I think even in looking at Paul and Barnabas' breakup, that as ugly as that breakup was, it actually ended up having a redemptive purpose. I mean, one, there was two missionary teams instead of one now going out. And secondly, as Paul later said in his letters, that they were all reconciled, they were co-laboring together, and I think that they all probably learned a tremendous amount about that kind of division and strife. As later he would write, several years later, to the Corinthians and the Colossians, he said to the Corinthians, it is only I, and he says, is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? I mean, he and Barnabas, as far as we know, had not been co-laboring together, and yet he speaks to the Corinthians as if they're aware of this relationship still continuing on in the future. And again to the Colossians, he says, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And he goes on, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. I mean, this is, this is wonderful because this horrible division suddenly was reconciled into a healing where these men who couldn't, 
couldn't stand being in each other's presence, suddenly we're reunited because of the bond of Christ. I would love to have been in those conversations. I would have loved to have seen them come together. I would have loved them seeing embracing and weeping and asking each other for forgiveness. Because that had to happen. Still, though it's not strongly stated, or clearly stated, I should say, there's a strong suggestion that in this dis- dispute that the leadership sided with Paul as opposed to Barnabas. <clears throat> when it says in verse 40 that Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, and he was commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. This word commended actually implies a, basically an empowerment and entrusting. Um, it's, it's basically saying they were giving Paul their endorsement. The way I put it is that Barnabas went but Paul was sent. And I think when we're trying to decide God's direction for our lives, we need to be able to make that distinction. God, am I just going where I wanna go or are you sending me someplace? And even as you ask the question, you may not come up with a definitive answer, but I'll tell you what, the fact that you ask him the question guarantees that you'll end up where he's sending you instead of where you've just chosen to go. I know in my life that every time I decided what was best for me and I said, this is what I'm going to do, without counseling with God, without praying with God, I always end up someplace, but it's someplace that I don't want to be. And I find myself saying, okay, God, I got myself into this. Get me out of this. In fact, quite honestly, before I came here, years before I came here, I was in a situation that I felt like, God, I can't survive anymore. I was working six days a week, four nights out of the week, and, and uh, you know, God was keeping me humble and the ministry was keeping me poor. Um, we could hardly pay our bills, hardly survive, and I just was offered this position at this church, which was really more money than I'd ever made in my whole life with benefits. Wow, who ever heard of that? See, when you're 16, you don't need benefits. <laughs> When you're 70, you better have some. (laughs) But the whole point is, I was in this situation and and this offer came and I said, I'm out of here. I'm down the road. Pack it up, we're getting out of here. And I did it. And it was one of the most difficult years that I spent any place in my entire life. Because I did not fit there. I wasn't a blessing to them and I wasn't blessed. And then I got a phone call to come here and being, again, a deeply spiritual man, he said, no way, Jose. <laughs> Not interested. Call somebody else. Why do you keep calling me? Okay, okay, I'll come and look. <laughs> and then we came and looked, and the next day, my wife and I looked at each other and said, we're supposed to stay here. This is where we're supposed to be. So I don't like to, I never try to present myself as being prophetic. When people come to me and say, well, tell me, do you know what God's will for my life is? I said, I'm not sure I know what God's will for my life is, much less yours. Because that's the idea that the just shall walk by faith. We don't always know, but it's that idea we come to him and say, God, I just want to be where you want me to be. And if you're in a, like, say, a job that you think is a dead-end job, you can't stand it, and you feel like you're so much more qualified and should be in a better position, and nobody here appreciates me, just stop for a moment, repent, and say, God, I'm here because you put me here and I will be faithful here until you call me to go someplace else. A dear friend one time told me that. He said for years I was stuck in this job. He graduates with a degree in physics, and he's driving a dump truck because he can't find any other work. For years, he's just bitter and resentful that, God, I mean, how could you do this? I've got all this education and skills and so forth, and what am I doing? I'm just driving a, a truck. And he said one day, God just spoke to him and said, give thanks to where you're at. And so he just began to praise God and just say, God, thank you for this job. Thank you for letting me do this. Thank you. Help me to be thankful for what I have, not what I don't have. And the next week, somebody came and offered a position that fit him perfectly. And I just, you know, he said, what was, he said, I realized that what God was trying to do is to break that heart of pride that says, I deserve better. I deserve better. I think about how many marriages would improve if people just stopped, well, I deserve something better. 
I mean, so many things would change in our life if we could just get over that self-aggrandizement. But what the church was looking for is, is that kind of heart. It, it endorsed Paul because they saw the faithfulness in Paul. And the issue was not being unwilling to forgive Mark. It was basically saying, is he mature enough? Has he learned enough to be faithful, to stand firm in the face of adversity? One of the reasons is because biblical virtues never exist in isolation. What I mean by that is we're called to love, but we're also called to speak the truth. It's not one or the other. We're called to confess our sins, but we're also called to repent of our sins. We're called to show mercy, but we also have to realize that mercy doesn't exist outside the context of judgment. If I say to you, I'm going to show mercy, I'm basically saying, I see something that's wrong in you, but I'm deciding to overlook it. I pass judgment on it. And, and people say, well, you shouldn't be judgmental. Try spending five minutes without, doing, without judging someone or something. I mean, since you've been sitting here, you've been doing it incessantly. <laughs> and George, you should because you need to be judging whether what I'm saying is true or not. You need to decide, is this guy really talking based upon what Scripture says, or is he just pontificating or bloviating? We recognize that God is merciful, but he, and he's forgiving, but he's also just and holy. That you cannot separate God from his godliness. You cannot follow Christ without striving to be Christ-like. These things are interrelated. They're aspects of Christianity that are so interrelated that Peter put it this way in his second letter to the church. When he, in the very beginning, the prologue of the letter, he says, his or God's divine power has given us everything we need for what? For life and godliness. Wait a minute. <laughs> He's empowered me with everything I need to be a godly man. Godliness means God-likeness. He goes on, through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and his own goodness, so that through him you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Whose evil desires? <laughs> Mine. That I, I bring corruption into my life and into the world by my evil desires, and he says, I will give you everything you need to escape that so that you can be a participant in the divine nature. I mean, think of it from that perspective. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you if you're a believer so that you can live in a way that you're participating with him. You're sharing with him in the life of God-likeness. And that's why he goes on, for this very reason, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Seven virtues, he says. These things are to be added, continually being added to your life as you pursue after God. For if you possess these qualities, he continues, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. See, Peter understood the problem of people who professed their faith, who were sincere in their faith, but they never really changed. And I don't think living a changed life is absolute proof that somebody is saved or not saved. I think it's a, an error we make. I never try to decide whether somebody is going to heaven or not or they know Jesus or not. I just know what the Bible says that you must believe in your heart. You must confess. I know what the Bible says are the predicates of getting eternal life. And if somebody says, well, I've done all that, then I, I have no question. I don't have the right to question, well, are you, do you really know the Lord? But it does raise a question sometimes. If you know him, why isn't it being translated into your life in some identifiable way? 
And that's a serious question that we need to be asking ourselves, we need to be asking other people. Why isn't it translating itself? What are the, what are the things that's blocking it? Because he just said, I've given you everything you need, I've provided with you everything, so that you can have your faith, and then you can begin to add to that faith and grow. And he says, if you're not adding to your faith, if there's not a progress, if the trajectory of your life isn't upward and onward in the will of God, then something has caused a blockage. And you need to begin to say, what is it that blinded me? What, is, what has made me so nearsighted? And I love the word nearsighted, because uh, I'm not. And I, the, but the idea of being nearsighted is you can only really see what's right in front of you, but you can't get the big picture. You can't see what's out there. All you can see is what's right in front of you. And that's the way many times Christians live their lives. They're so burrowed into the situation that they're in in this moment that they can't step back and see the bigger picture, what God's doing. The idea of progressing in Christian virtues is especially true and especially important when we're speaking about those who are in positions of influence or leadership within the church. That's why Paul would say to the Corinthians, he said, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful, and that's in a continuous sense. Not that they were once faithful, but they are continuing to walk faithfully with God. And this is why Paul in his letters to Timothy and Titus gives an extensive list, some 21 essential qualifications for spiritual leaders that he says must be met and must be maintained. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a harrowing list. So although I admire Barnabas' desire to give Mark a second chance, I, I love his compassion, I love his, lo his love. He was known as the apostle of compassion, but he was overlooking one of the necessary qualifications for somebody to be in leadership that Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, let, those, let them also be tried and investigated and proved first. Literally means to scrutinize, to test, to analyze. And then if they turn out to be above reproach, which doesn't mean perfect, but it means that they have not, they've never left anything unrepented that they need to repent of. That they're addressing in the moment, they're keeping their spiritual debts very close and short. He says, then you can let them serve. Then you can let them serve. See, undoubtedly, Mark had many commendable qualities. I mean, he gave us the gospel of Mark. I don't want to trash on him too much. But at this point in his life, faithful endurance wasn't one of them. In the face of hardship, he gave up. And this is why years later, when Paul was facing death and wanted to pass the baton of leadership to the next generation, he wrote to Timothy and said, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And that means by word and example. You therefore, he said, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Basically, it's a call to focus on this issue of character rather than cleverness. To focus on conviction rather than what happens to be convenient or even your skill to communicate. To focus on commitment rather than celebrity. Each time I hear about a celebrity pastor crashing and burning and it happens far too often, far too many places. And there's something about you get to a certain place of elevation <clears throat> that sets you up for failure. Every time I think about it, I'm reminded of Stephen Covey's 1989 book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I mean, I don't necessarily subscribe to everything he wrote in the book or agree with that or anything. I think it's, it's a very uh, good contemporary book of advice to Mormons. Um, but there's some, some undeniable truths in, in what he wrote. I, I particularly loved the introduction when he made this following observation about America. This is back in 1989. He said, most of the success literature published in the United States for the first 150 years focused on the character ethic as being the foundation of success. What's the character ethic? Well, integrity, humility, simplicity, Fairness, 
modesty, love, courage, justice, and the golden rule. However, shortly after World War I, the basic view of success shifted from the character ethic to the personality ethic. In these books, the driving force behind success was an individual's personality as opposed to character. Things like public image, how you dress, how you perform in social interactions, positive mental attitude, skills and techniques to get people to behave in certain ways, as long as you say and do the right things and package yourself in the right ways, you will be likely to get the results you want. I guess my question for you would simply be, which of these two do you think God is more concerned with, your personality or your character? Because I absolutely think many times we think personality is the thing that matters. Where God says, I don't really care for any of your personalities, I'm more concerned about your character. More importantly, which one are you more concerned with when it comes to your life? You see, personality day is valued because it's seen as the path to success. Uh, and, and we oftentimes develop, de, uh, define it as celebrity. And I, I, I'm amazed at many of those who have become celebrity personalities. I mean, uh, sometimes they've, they've been so immoral that that's the basis of their celebrity. Or they're amoral, they don't have any sense of right and wrong, and that's what people know them for. Now contrast that with the path of the cross, the way of the cross. See, it's intentionally the reverse of personality, the reverse of celebrity, the reverse of the success ethic, the very ethic that drives many people today. You see, Jesus' kingdom is a place where grace is given to who? The humble. Honor is given to the meek. Power to the weak. Satisfaction to those who are spiritually hungry where the servant is called to be the master and the master is to be the servant, the least becomes the greatest. His kingdom is led by those who love the applause of heaven more than they desire the accolades of men. It's a distinction made clearly by Paul in Romans 12 when he says, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. One commentator adds, it's a decisive dedication of your bodies presenting all of your members and all of your faculties to God. He says, this is what's holy and pleasing to God. Not what you so much accomplish, but the fact you come to and say, here I am, God. Your will be done. He said, this is your rational, intelligent, reasonable spiritual act of worship. So, no longer conform any longer to the pattern of this world. In other words, no longer allowing yourself to be fashioned after and adapted to the external, superficial customs and practices of our culture. If I ever think there's a time in the age where the church needed to hear this, it's, it's certainly been up until this particular period, where the whole movement of Christianity was to somehow be kind of a kind of a spiritual wokeness. That we're, our music really parrots the world's music. Our, our, our verbiage kind of echoes what they talk about. We, we're kind of lining up with the culture and, and so that we can stay connected and relevant and all this sort of stuff. And what we fail to realize is the spiritual world is never relevant to the carnal world. And as someone once said so aptly, there's no way quicker to becoming irrelevant than striving to be relevant, especially in the church. When we try to imitate the culture, we're about 10 years behind. You know, we're about 10 years behind. 
I remember years ago, we were consulting with a company to do our sound and lighting and all the stuff for our church, and they had this whole big program, and, and they said, well, we can put these uh, smoke machines or whatever they are, you know, to mist in the crowd. He says, we call it artificial Holy Spirit. <laughs> Poor guy didn't realize I was done right then. <laughs> no, thank you. The minute you're talking about doing something artificial and spirit in the same, yeah, I mean, something's very wrong here. And you step back and say, okay, who are we trying to reach? We're trying to reach people who want to know God. Not who think we're woke. I don't think they understand the conjugation of verbs when they say that. But rather, he said, what you need is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind It's a new way of seeing the world, a new perception, a new way of thinking about your life in it, a new way of living your life. Because God has suddenly given you a whole new perspective. You've gone to the mountaintop and you've looked over it all and said, oh, I had it all wrong. I've been heading in the wrong direction. I've been predicating my choices on a wrong set of assumptions. He goes on, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Literally, the term there literally means having an exaggerated, intoxicated opinion of your own importance. An intoxicating opinion of your own importance. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment. This word sophroneo in Greek, it's, it means sane and sensible, but it means literally not like you're a drunk. That pride gives you a kind of drunkenness. It affects your perspective. You know, that's why, why we, we pray that people don't drink and drive, because we know they aren't in full control of their capacities. They make Bad decisions, they overreact in some and they underreact in others, endangering the lives of themselves and others. He says what pride is the same thing, it it creates a mental drunkenness where you think you're in control, you think you're looking at things but you don't really see things as they are and you make bad choices. How do we do that? Well, John Corson once, he used to say quite often actually, it was one of his famous motifs or maxims. He said, if you take care of your depth, God will take care of your breadth. I mean, if you concern yourself with going deep with the Lord, he'll take care of all the other stuff on the surface. If you work on that vertical relationship, he'll take care of the horizontal dynamics of your life. And one of the things you'll find when you do that is he actually follows up in that way. He actually does it. I often tell people there's two things that we're told to do. One is to look up and look out. (laughs) Look up first for your redemption draws near. Looking up is that, that basic statement saying, I am not living for time, I'm living for eternity. And I realize that eternity is a whole lot longer than any amount of time I have here and it's forever. I want to live my life predicated on my eternity, not just predicated on my best life now. And as soon as you do that, and you bring your eyes back on the horizon, you see the horizon with a whole different lens. As Jesus said, you see the fields are white and ready to be harvested. And you say, God, you've provided me with a great opportunity. Father, I pray that you'd do a work in each and every one of us, myself in particular, Lord. One of the biggest dangers, James said, is if we preach to others and then we don't do the very thing that we say, that we're under a more severe judgment. The consequences are more radical and more penetrating. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us. You would help us to be men and women who are more concerned about our depth than we are our breadth. We're more concerned about our relationship with you than we are about any other relationship in our life because our relationship with you will really dictate what our relationships with other peoples are like. 
Help us, Lord, to be able to get high enough on the mountaintop of spiritual life to look out on our world and our, our relationships, our families, everything going on in the world, and to suddenly see it holistically, to see it as it really is, to be able to discern what matters and what's done, what's critical and what's not critical, what's valuable and what is not. We need your help, Lord, in this. So please help us, we ask in Jesus' name.